became a man, and through his death upon the cross and his resurrection would give light to all mankind. That's, that was what he was explaining in the prologue and what he was going to set out to accomplish in his gospel. Then John the Baptist comes on the scene and begins to declare that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when he is baptizing people and thousands of people are coming out to him to be baptized, one day he sees Jesus and he points him out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he points out Jesus as the Messiah. And then Jesus begins to gather his first disciples. Some people come up to him and ask to be with him. Uh, perhaps Jesus called some people to him, but his disciples begin to gather around him. Now, in today's passage, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the action really kind of begins to pick up, and John says that this is Jesus' first sign, the first miracle that he performs. And that's when Nathaniel goes, oh, no, no, it's not. Remember me? He saw me under the fig tree. Sorry, Nathaniel. That doesn't count for whatever reason. John the Baptist says, that's, that's small beans, Nathaniel. That doesn't count. Nathaniel's like, oh, shucks. But anyways, this is the first sign that Jesus performs according to John. So the action is getting started here. And so there's a wedding at Cana, which was, a, you know, a little town, a small town in Galilee, and Jesus was invited to this wedding. His disciples were invited as well. Jesus' mother was invited too. So it seems like this was like a local affair. Back then, people kind of knew each other. It wasn't like the Bay Area or New York City where there are thousands and millions of people around you you don't know. A lot of people knew each other in these communities, and apparently they knew Jesus, they knew his mother, and they were invited to the wedding. Now, Mary seems like she also had a role in this wedding. He, like she was involved in, in helping to coordinate in some way maybe or making sure that there was enough food or enough wine there. That's what it seems like. It's possible that she just was a guest and noticed that they ran out of wine and she was just trying to be a good Samaritan and came over to Jesus and was trying to get him involved. It could be, but but I think that she had some type of formal role, given how she was able to command the servants and tell them, hey, do what Jesus tells you. Whatever it was, his mother was involved in helping to see that there was enough wine and food. Now, weddings back in those days were a huge deal, a huge deal. Weddings could last one to two weeks. This is not just like three hours, the weddings that we have nowadays here in America usually, but it could be a week or two, a huge affair. And weddings were a really big deal because life was hard back then. Life was hard. There often wasn't as many thing, good things to look forward to. So a wedding was something that everybody looked forward to. Really exciting time. There'd be good food. There'd be good wine. Uh, everybody getting together. You're celebrating. Uh, a man and a woman coming together in marriage. It was just a wonderful thing. People were really, really excited about this. So it was a huge deal. And in the weddings back then, one thing culturally that was expected was the groom side of the family was supposed to make sure there was plenty of food and wine and everything that was needed there. And if you didn't have enough, if you ran out of food or if you ran out of wine, this was a major deal. It was a huge embarrassment. When I got married, uh, to Christine, we, you know, wine wasn't as big of a deal in our, in our wedding, but food certainly was. We wanted the food to be really good. And I can't imagine, like, if during our wedding we ran out of food. 
You know, like, you know, they started serving food and they only had enough food for half the people. And then they said to the other people, sorry, well, maybe you could share with the people around you. Or there's a McDonald's a few blocks down. Why don't you go get some food? I would have been mortified, right? I would have been so embarrassed at this huge event, our wedding, to run out of food. Now for them, at these weddings that could last one or two weeks, for them to run out of wine, this was a major embarrassment and source of shame. We don't know why they ran out, if it was poor planning, maybe the couple getting married, maybe the groom was, was poor. Maybe they were hoping that they would have enough and they could stretch it, but whatever, whatever the reason was, they ran out of wine. Now, not only was this, this an embarrassment, but actually in that time, the groom's family could actually be sued for not having enough wine. Um, they were contractually, in a way, expected to provide. This is part of their end of the bargain. They, in a wedding, had to provide the food and the wine. And to not provide enough, actually, they could be sued for this. So this is the situation. It's terrible. It's a really, really bad situation. And so now things get interesting here in verse 3. When Jesus' mother comes up to him, so she sees the situation. They're out of wine. She comes up to him and says, they have no wine. Now, I don't think that that's just an observation where she's just going, hey, Jesus, I noticed, look, they have no more wine. Man, that stinks. I think when we look at the context here that she is insinuating, she is suggesting to him or asking him to get involved and do something. Now, one question that comes up here is, what was Mary actually expecting? Could she really have expected Jesus to do a miracle here? Is that what we should be thinking was going on in her mind? I mean, first of all, Jesus had never performed a miracle before. I know Nathaniel's like, yes, he has. Yes, he has. But no, according to John, Jesus never performed a real, real miracle yet. So Mary hasn't seen anything. Was she just leaning on her firstborn son? The really, the really model son that Jesus, I'm sure he was, to kind of just be resourceful and figure something out. But he was a carpenter. He wasn't wealthy. Where in the world would he be able to get wine for everybody? I think she did expect Jesus to do some type of miracle. And there are a few reasons for that. Well, first being John the Baptist was a pretty big deal. Everybody's coming out to him to get baptized. And he points out her son as the Messiah. Okay, so that's a big deal. Everybody's starting to recognize. People are starting to see that Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist pointed him out. She also saw her son starting to gather a group of followers around him. So maybe she's thinking, oh, it, it, things are happening now. You know, like Jesus is, is starting to get his like Messiah campaign going. You know, and he's gathering a team around him. Things are really starting to happen now. Maybe he's going to start doing some Messiah stuff. Not to mention the fact that before Jesus was born, an angel came to her and said, you're going to have the Son of God, and said to her, this baby is going to happen not because you sleep with your husband, but it's going to be this miraculous conception. Maybe that had something to do with it as well. I think all of these reasons make it very plausible that, Jesus was ex that Mary was expecting Jesus to do something in this moment when, he, when they ran out of wine. Maybe she's thinking, what, what a great opportunity a wedding, so many people here, for him to do a miracle, 
for him to tell everybody who he is, the Messiah. I don't know. I think that's very, very possible. Now, how did Jesus respond to his mother? Very interestingly, he says, woman, woman. Now, that is not as bad as it sounds in English. Because I know some of you are thinking like, if I, call, if I said to my mother, woman, you know what would happen to me? She brought me into this world, and she would take me out of this world. If I called her woman. But in, in the Greek, in the Greek, okay, Jesus is not being disrespectful here. Uh, the term, it's hard to get a perfect English, and this is not perfect, but probably the closest thing would be ma'am. Ma'am. So Jesus said, not mammy, Jesus says to his mother, ma'am, ma'am. So it's not disrespectful, but it is certainly not something that a son would say to his mother as well. Why, why does Jesus say this? Okay, what's going on here? Um, it, it's not, we know it's not disrespectful because Jesus, when he was on the cross and he was about to die, he looked at John and he said, this is your mother. And he looked at his mother, Mary, and he said, woman, this is your son. Right? He used the same term. Right? So it's, it's not a disrespectful term, but it's not the term that a son would say to his mother as well. Then he says, what does this have to do with me? Which is very interesting as well. Because in the Greek, it's te emoi kai soi. Four words. Literally, what, me, and you. What, me, and you. Right? Now, what that means is, what, is this, what do you and I have to do with each other? In other words, it's, well, we know she's his mother, but he's saying, this has nothing to do with me. In fact, that term, what me and you, it, it, when it's used in the New Testament, you can find it used by demons when Jesus comes on the scene. So demons are upset because Jesus comes. They're scared. They, they, they don't want to leave the person that they're possessing. And then they see him and they say, Jesus, son of God, you know, what me and you? In other words, what are you doing here? Like, like leave us alone. This is nothing, none of your affair. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Please, please leave. That's a term that Jesus uses. Why does he do this? Say, ma'am, what does this have to do between me and you? The term here, it, it at the very least is some type of rebuke of Mary, but in a very measured cordial way. But what is he saying? What is Jesus saying? What he's saying is he's making a declaration. He's making a break in a sense where he's telling her, woman, ma'am, you know, I am no longer your son in the way that you're expecting me to be. In, in the way where you are putting these familial ties and expectations over me, my ministry has begun and now I answer to my Father in heaven, and I can only do what I see the Father doing. What he is saying is that everything else, now that his mission has begun, every other tie, every other expectation of him, even family ones, which were the closest ones in that society, had to be placed beneath, subordinated to the will of the Father. And Jesus' schedule that he was on was the Father's schedule. And no human earthly schedule would affect his timing and what he was doing. Jesus really 
emphasizes this. Like, um, you know, Mary doesn't come on the scene a lot, but when she does, he emphasizes this oftentimes. In, in Matthew 12, at one point, Jesus is teaching in a house, crowded house. So many people were there to listen to him. And it's, somebody came up to him and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to speak with you. What were they saying? The expectation was, Jesus, you're going to have to stop your teaching. You're going to have to stop what you're doing because your family expects you to come out to them. Jesus, knowing this, that people were thinking this, he said to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is making a declaration here. The only one that I submit to is the will of the Father in heaven. And I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. And I am on his schedule, not the schedule of any other human being or societal expectation. I think that's why he's saying that. And then he says something very interesting here. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, what does he mean by that? There's so much cryptic stuff going on in today's passage. What does he mean by my hour has not yet come? Well, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, the hour refers to his his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection from the dead. It refers to his going to the cross that moment, that time. And Jesus says, it's not that time yet. My hour has not yet come. We see this in, later on in chapter, John chapter 7. It says, when people were trying to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They, they, they wanted to arrest him, but it couldn't happen in the will of God because it was not yet time for him to be arrested and to go to the cross. In John 8, same thing kind of happened. Uh, they, again, they wanted to arrest him, but it says no one arrested him because the hour had not yet come. I don't know how that works. I don't know if they're like, arrest him. No, maybe later after lunch. And where'd he go? He's gone. I, I don't know. We don't know what happened. Probably just, you know, they're thinking about it. Maybe they decided not to do it in the sovereignty of God. They didn't arrest him because it was not time yet. His hour had not come. But when his hour did come, Jesus knew it. In John 12, when the Gentiles finally came to him, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He talked about death, how death was coming. In the next chapter, right before the Passover, Jesus it says Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that hour is referring to Jesus' death upon the cross that was coming. Now, the question there is still, well, what does that have to do with wine running out at a wedding? Jesus, you're talking about, okay, your hour has not come yet. It's not time for you to go to the cross. What does that have to do with no more wine at a wedding? Hold that thought for a moment. We'll get back to that. Hold that thought for one moment. As we look back here now, So how does Mary respond? She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there's a mystery here too. What is Mary thinking here? Is she going, 
Yeah, yeah, Jesus, your hour has not yet come. Okay, okay. Guys, do what he says. He's going to provide wine. Is, is that what she's saying? Another theologian thinks that, no, she's actually submitting to the will of God, to the will of Jesus. That in her saying, do whatever he says, that there's an acknowledgement that it's not about me and what I want, but it's about Jesus and what he wants in submitting to that. Is that... We don't know at the end of the day what exactly it was. Was it persistence? Was it submission? But here's the bigger question, actually. Jesus, what does he do? He actually fills these jars, right? And he does this miracle. So the question is, the bigger question is, if Jesus had just rebuffed his mother and said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He says all this, and then he goes and he does the miracle anyway. Why? Why does he do that? Well, this is not the only place in the Bible where we see Jesus do something that he first said he wasn't going to do because of people's pressure. Like in John chapter 7, at one point his brothers told him, hey, if you want to be somebody, you want to be the Messiah, go up to Jerusalem, show yourself to everybody. Because it says that they didn't even believe in him. For whatever reason, they didn't believe in him. I get that, right? Your older brother says he's God. Come on, come on. That'd be hard. That's, that'd be hard for any brother to swallow, right? It's like even a brother as good as Jesus, who never, never beat on you, never did all that stuff, but he says he's God. Go ahead, go show yourself to everybody in Jerusalem. And, and they didn't believe in him. And Jesus said to them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. So he didn't go. But it says later on, he did go up anyway. Why? Why does he do that? Well, I believe it's because he, he's, he's, he's declaring to his brothers, he's answering them, and he's answering his mother in these situations. But at the same time, if he recognizes that this actually is in alignment with the Father's will, then he will go and he will do it. And, and I think that's probably what happened here. He's made his point to Mary. Look, I'm not on your timeline. I'm on the Father's timeline. But then in that moment, he realizes, he sees that this actually would be according to the will of the Father. And he goes and he performs this miracle. Now, going back, connecting that with the hour, his hour had not yet come. What's going on here? I think this is what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you know, my hour has not yet come. The time of my death, the time of my resurrection. But, but I will give you a sign of what my death will accomplish. I will. I'll do that for you right now. I'll do that for people around me here. And I'm going to do that through this wedding and through this situation that's going on here. Jesus is, in a sense, acting out a parable, if you will, about what his, his death would accomplish. He's pointing forward to the hour of what would happen through his death. Now, now what are those things? Two things. The first has to do with purification here. And these are the two main points here today. The first is this. Notice that Jesus says here to the servants, he points out six stone jars there that, that are normally used to hold water for Jewish purification rites. What does that mean? For the Jews, it was very, very important to cleanse themselves with water 
baths, washing of hands, various different things, as a way of ceremonially cleansing themselves before coming before God. You see that all over the Torah, all over the first five books of Moses. Now, can that actually clean their heart? Can it actually clean their spirit? No, it's just water. But why do they do it? They do it because it symbolizes something. This water cleansing them symbolizes not just that their body is clean, but that they need to be cleansed by God. And and what Jesus is saying here is he's saying something very specific by using these six jars for Jewish water purification rites. He could have said, hey, what was the wine stored in before? Let's go fill those bad boys up. Put his hand on those those wineskins or whatever it was and fill them up with wine. He didn't do that. He specifically said, fill up these purification jars. And they filled them up and they became wine. What, what, is, what, is, what is Jesus saying here? We know that wine also, oftentimes in the Bible, symbolizes the blood of Christ. It symbolizes the death of Christ. When we take communion, we drink wine or grape juice because it represents, it symbolizes the blood of Christ. That's what wine symbolizes. In chapter 1, verse 16, John talks about Jesus and how he brought grace instead of grace. How the old covenant, the law of Moses, was a type of grace in that it pointed out your sin. It helped you to realize that you're a sinner. But the grace of Jesus would bring a cleansing grace that can cleanse us in a way that water never could. It is the new wine of the new covenant that is available to us only through the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here about his death, about what his hour would accomplish, is that it would accomplish true purification. It will purify you. It will cleanse you from your sin, your guilt, your shame in a way that nothing else ever could. It will do that. Friends, how do we deal with our guilt and shame? How do you deal with your guilt and shame? Don't we usually, usually try to cover it up? Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God came looking for them, they covered themselves. They hid behind bushes because they felt ashamed. Their sin brought shame, and they hid from God. They tried to cover themselves. Isn't that what we do? We try to cover ourselves with good works, maybe some philanthropy, giving of money, doing good deeds. We try to cover over our guilt and our shame to purify ourselves, but it doesn't work. It's like seeing a really a wall covered with dirt and grime, What's one quick way to get rid of it? Not the hard work of cleaning it off. You just cover it with a new coat of paint. And then you look at it and you go, wow, brand new, so nice and clean. What happens over time? It's going to get dirty again. It's going to get scuffed up, marked up again. What do you do after maybe a year or so? Let's put another coat of paint on that bad boy. Put that paint on, looks as good as new. I feel so good. I feel so clean. You keep doing that year after year after year, putting on layer and coat of paint after coat of paint after coat of paint. You know what's going to happen? You're going to create this thick, 
nasty coat of paint on your walls that's going to bubble and flake and start to chip and look gross. You're going to see an outline of that spider that you didn't bother to remove, that you just painted over there underneath everything else. It's going to look disgusting. It doesn't work. The only thing you could do at that point is you have to strip all of that paint off, get to what's underneath, and really clean it out. How do we purify ourselves? How do we cleanse ourselves? Even even as Christians, if you are a Christian, we do this, don't we? Rather than going to the purifying power of Christ, recognizing the purification that we have received in Jesus, what do we do when we sin and we feel ashamed? We try to cover it up, don't we? By reading our Bibles, by praying, by doing good deeds. Maybe we feel like with the passage of time, we could be separated from sin, as if time could separate us from sin, rather than going to Jesus. We all, in different ways, have guilt. We have shame. Everyone in this world does. The question is, how do we deal with that? How do we purify that? You know, one thing that I feel really um, bad about in my own life is when I think about my father and the period when he struggled with lung cancer. My dad got lung cancer back in, I don't know, I think it was like 1998 or so. He was diagnosed with it. He had been a smoker for many, many years, so it wasn't super surprising. But he, he struggled with cancer. He got chemotherapy, and it seemed like it was kind of working. It was, it was helping for a while, then eventually the cancer cells got used to the, to the, um, the chemotherapy. They adjusted. They developed a resistance to it, and then he went on a, a downhill spiral. And I remember that time. I was in my early 20s, and I didn't really know how to deal with this. And I would often try to kind of escape and just not really go spend that much time at home. Um, I didn't really know what to do. I felt a bit uncomfortable. Sometimes, honestly, I felt bored just sitting there with my dad. Even though my dad, I could tell how much he wanted me around, how much he felt so happy to see me, I wasn't able to handle what he was going through. And so often, I would, I would leave. And after he passed away from cancer, you know, as I look back, it's one thing that I, I feel really bad about, how I wish I had actually spent more time with my father, been more patient with him, and been there to love him. And I know people can say, well, you were young. You didn't, you didn't know how to handle things. It's okay. And, and I appreciate those words, but I, I know in my heart the times where I was impatient and I just lacked the love for him that I wish I could have shown now. I could, I could try to go out and find another old person and go care for an old man somewhere in, in Sunnyvale or around here and, and, and try to make up for that time with my father. And that might be a really good thing, but at the end of the day, he's not my dad. That wouldn't be my father. And, and I know my shortcomings and the ways in which I, I failed. What do, you, what do we do when we have guilt or shame or things 
that we feel that are so deep that they really can't be covered over by good deeds, things that time doesn't wash away. One thing that is powerful enough to cleanse us from all of our mistakes, our shortcomings, our failures, is the blood of Christ that purifies the deepest sin, the deepest shame, the deepest mistakes that we have made. That was what Jesus' hour was about. It is so powerful a cleansing agent, the blood of Christ, that when there were two criminals hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and one of them was hurling insults at Jesus, and the other one said, why are you insulting him? Stop insulting him. We deserve to be up here. This man has done nothing. Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. What did Jesus say to him? I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be cleansed. And this man, he was a bad man. I don't know why he was up there, but he wasn't up there saying, I don't deserve to be up here, I'm innocent. He said, I deserve to be up here. He was a a criminal, a murderer, a thief. I don't know what it was, but it was bad enough where he was up there and he knew I deserve to be up here. And all he did was look at Jesus in faith and say, I believe that you're the Messiah. I know that I am a sinner. Jesus, please remember me. I put my faith in you. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. His death was powerful enough to cleanse this man who did not even have the opportunity in his life to become a saint and live for God and become a missionary and do all these things. Just faith in the blood of Christ. True purification. The second thing, I'm going to try to move fast here, I know today because we started a little bit late, is how Jesus is the true bridegroom. He's the true bridegroom. Notice here that the master of the feast tasted this water. The master of the feast is basically the, the wedding coordinator. One thing that has stood the test of time is a wedding coordinator, right? Everybody's got one. They had one back then 2,000 years ago. We have wedding coordinators now. This person, I don't know if he's panicking because there's no more wine. He's like, what, what's, what are we going to do? So this wine gets brought to him. He tastes it, and he goes, my gosh, this, you saved the good wine until now. So what we can see from this is we can, we can um, understand a little bit of ancient Near East trickery. Not trickery, but just the way they kind of did things back then, which is at a wedding, what they did was wine cost money, right? So they would, set the, they would take out the very best wine in the beginning while people were very sober. And they would drink this wine while they were very sober and go, ooh, that's good. That's good. Oh, circa BC, uh, you know, 7,000, whatever, right? It's like, that's a really good bottle of, of wine. Wow, you're really taking care of us. And then after people have had several drinks, maybe have become somewhat more inebriated and they don't really know what they're drinking anymore, they bring out the, the, the radiator coolant, right? Or whatever it is, the other kind of stuff. And, the, and then they start serving that because nobody knows anymore, right? They bring out the cheap stuff, basically. So this wedding coordinator says, you've brought out, you've saved the good stuff until now. You saved it to the very end. What does that mean? What is that saying? What that's saying here is, what we can learn from that is that this wine that Jesus made is actually better than the wine that they served at the very beginning 
of the wedding. Because he's saying, oh, this is, you saved it till now. This was the stuff that people usually bring out at the very beginning of the wedding. Jesus made wine better than the best wine that they served at this wedding. Jesus, I wouldn't be surprised if his wine was the very best wine that any of these people had ever tasted or that anybody had ever made. Jesus' wine was the very best. What, what, what is happening here? What is Jesus saying? This, this bridegroom, this groom, who could not provide enough wine for his wedding guests, who fell short, this wedding that was going to turn into a disaster because of a bridegroom that could not provide for all of the guests, Jesus makes 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Okay, that's going to, this party can go on for two months. No one's going to be able to drink that much wine over, up to the brim. Jesus, Jesus, he, he provides in fullness. When Jesus provides, there is no shortfall. And what this is pointing to, friends, what this sign, John said this is a sign. A sign points to something else greater that is to come. What Jesus is saying through this is that I am the true bridegroom. And let me tell you, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I'm the true bridegroom. He describes multiple times in the Gospels and in the New Testament, it's described that when we are together with God again, it will be a wedding. Multiple times. Revelation 19, the end of the New Testament, basically, it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, who is us, the church, has made herself ready. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying the best is yet to come. And, and, and that is so important, brothers and sisters, friends. He's saying, if you put your faith in me, the crucified and resurrected Savior, not only will you experience love, forgiveness, peace now in this life, but the very best is yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth, because anything connected with me, anything connected with the Messiah will be better on a whole new level than even the best of this world, than even the best things of this world, than even the best that this world can provide. Why is that important? Friends, I'm trying to wrap up here. If the goal of your life is to experience the best that this world has to offer, then this world is going to leave you disappointed like an earthly bridegroom who comes up short. Like wine skins that end up empty. If that is where you are putting your hope. And, and sometimes we don't even realize it. We can call ourselves Christians, but what are we pursuing with our time and our energy? The very best of this world. Think about how much time you take when you're trying to figure out what taco to eat in L.A. How much time do you yelp? Is this taco the very best taco that I can have? What about that one? That one. I don't know which one. I got one meal. Which think We spend so much of our time. The very best. We're searching for the very best things in this world. 
And, and without knowing it, if that's what we're seeking, if that is the goal of our lives, it's going to leave you very, very empty and very disappointed. You may not even realize that because this world is actually filled with disappointment. Why? Because this world is broken by sin. This world is broken by sin. There is so much brokenness and disappointment in this world, and it will not end until Christ returns to renew this world. This world is filled with sickness. It's filled with cancer diagnoses. In this world, you will get hurt by people, and you will hurt other people. In this world, there are wars and there are famine. Your spouse will disappoint you. You will disappoint your spouse. Your kids may break your heart. You may not get into that dream school that you want to get into or that job that you want. Things around us are getting ridiculously expensive. You could get laid off. This world is filled with brokenness. This world will disappoint. Jesus said, you will have trouble in this world. And here we are, focusing all our attention on just getting the very best of this world. The best taco, the best house in the best school district, the best job, the best degree, the best reputation among people, the best things. We're seeking the best of this world. If we don't understand this, you may end up blaming God, friends. God, how could you do this to me? How could I lose my job? How could I not get into that school? How could I have cancer, God? Don't you love me? What is that mindset? I'm supposed to have the best in this world. And if I don't, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you, God. I thought you loved me. We totally flipped everything upside down. Jesus said, no, empty wineskins. Bridegroom's coming up short. But when you put your faith in me, I tell you, the best is yet to come. We can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Not only will this life be filled with the joy that can only come by being forgiven and being known by our Savior and being a part of the church and the family of God and having a true purpose and hope and meaning in this life, but the best is yet to come, friends. You know, the really ironic thing about all of this, friends, is that so many people, maybe hundreds of people, drank this incredible wine that Jesus made. But most of them didn't know where it came from. They're just like, man, those who are sober enough were like, man, that is some good wine. That is unbelievable. Get me some more of this. But you know, that wine, no matter how good it is, that wine was also going to run out. And then maybe they move on. They go on doing something else. They go on talking about that wine that was so good. Remember Joe's wedding? Oh my gosh, that wine was so good. They go to other weddings. They realize, man, nobody's wine was as good as that one. They just go on with their lives. They enjoy that wine, and they totally miss out on the person who made the wine, the one who gave the gift of that wine, the one who says, I can make your life like this. I can make your future like this. It was only a few people, those disciples, 
some of those servants who were aware. And they realized, you know what? It's not the wine. It's the giver of this wine. We found something so much more important than the best wine this world has to offer, than the best things this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, my question is this. What are you seeking? That's the question. It was Jesus' question to the first disciples who came and followed him. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Right now, if we could be honest with ourselves, what are you seeking? And if we're honest, I think for many of us, there's that temptation or maybe that confusion or we don't even realize it, but we're just looking for the best things in this world. And we've set our hearts upon those things and we get so disappointed and crushed if we don't get those things. We get depressed, we get sad, we get broken, we blame God. And we miss out, we totally miss what God is offering to us, himself, as we walk through this world and and the best that is yet to come. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we go through this world with hope, knowing that God has reserved the very best for us, that he saved the best for last, and the best is yet to come. Let's pray together as I invite the worship team up. I know we're running a little bit over time today, but can we just take a moment to pray right now? We'll close with one song of worship, but can we stand together? Brothers and sisters, let's examine our hearts right now. Do you really believe that Jesus is the very best and that having him, if you have Jesus, that you have everything and that this world is really not your home? It doesn't mean we can't enjoy good things. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy good wine when it's provided. But it does mean we don't make those things our God. Is, is, is your career your God right now? Is comfort, is material success, is marriage, your children, is something else your God? What are the best things that you are pursuing? Hear Jesus' words. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? If you come to me, you will see the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I don't have any of those things to offer you, but I offer you myself. I offer you the intimacy and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I offer you a hope that this world can never take away. That the best is yet to come. Would you, this morning, come and and, and ask God, Lord, help me to focus once again. In fact, Lord, I just pray right now, I pray, God, that you would help us to know this morning the incredible forgiveness through Christ. I pray that every person in this room would not walk away carrying their guilt or their shame and continuing to try to cover over those things with their accomplishments or performance, but instead that they would come to the purifier of their souls and know that Jesus can cleanse. And I pray too, Lord God, that we would come 
Lord God, with our hearts, God, and whatever it is that we're seeking, Lord, if it is not you, if we've placed our hopes in other things in this world, God, we want to repent of that. Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see that, Lord, this world has nothing I desire except you. Oh, Lord God, help us to long for the best things that are yet to come in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Pray. 